you don't know me, my name is Miliani Smith. My pronouns are she, hers, hers, and I am a junior at Charlotte Country Day School. Hey, hi everyone. I'm Hena Barada, and I am a senior at Independence High School. So, Millie, how has your week been? It's been a little hectic, you know, obviously like school's picking up and everything because like the third or like fourth week of school now, kind of like already losing track. But, you know, just this week with tests and like more homework and everything, but I'm like managing it. It's definitely different and getting adjusted to it still. But what's something that's helped you get through the week or something that's made you laugh? So something that made me laugh every time my friend just tagged me in a meme or something. So every in-between classes, I just like, just read some memes and just laugh out loud. How does it feel to host CYC's first podcast? Well, I don't want to speak for both of us, but I mean, it's a little like nerve wracking, but also really exciting. And this is just such a great opportunity. And I'm like so ready to talk to our guest, kind of bring me into who our guest is. So today we're going to be talking about racial inequalities in education with special guest Janine Bryant, who is the Director of Operations at Creed, which is the Center of Racial Equity in Education. Thank you for joining us. Hi, I'm so glad to be with you all. And Hannah and Millie, thank you so much for um, hosting today. I'm excited to talk to you all and to all the students here. So to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Let's buckle up and let's get a little personal. Janine, your bio says that you're an intersectional educator, uh, facilitator, trainer. Can you down for us? Uh, what does that mean exactly? Sure. So that is my, that's my super short bio that I use to describe the many parts of my work and my identity. I think it's really important to acknowledge right off the bat that I am a black woman and I love black people. And I say that um, because I think so, so many times we are asked to kind of separate our identity. I am a woman. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I um, am a woman who is a mother. I am an auntie. I'm a friend. And I am also um, come from a middle class background. Um, I'm a first generation college grad. There's so many parts of my identity that make up who I am. And I think that's true for all of us. And so to, to be a full person and to live authentically, we've got to um, embrace all those parts of ourselves. I also have that I'm a facilitator. Uh, I'm a trained facilitator. So I work amongst uh, people who have uh, either cultural or communication differences and help them communicate with each other. And I also have that I'm an agitator, which is part of my training from a community organizer background, where I learned that sometimes um, in order to make change, you've got to be willing to agitate those people who are willing to, uh, or only, only willing to be comfortable and don't want to disrupt the status quo. I think that's really great to hear. I think at CYC, we definitely like embody like everyone having their own identity. So now that we know a little bit more about you, could you tell us a little bit more about Creed? Because I'm sure that we all know about the movie Creed, you know, Michael B. Jordan and everything, but we want to know a little bit more about the, your organization. Uh, it's actually funny that you say that because before we named Creed, we really thought about all the ways in which people might think about the word Creed whether people would associate with us with the movie. So um, Creed is the Center for Racial Equity in Education. And before that, we spent months and months planning, trying to launch this nonprofit. Our partner and I, James Ford, co-founded this as an opportunity to push on everything we know about North Carolina's public education system. Um, we are both former classroom teachers, and we saw firsthand what was happening in our classroom and in our district. And we, we started asking questions. We wanted different things for our students and for our parents and for all the advocates. And so Creed is really a manifestation of um, how do we start to ask some different questions? Uh, how do we push on uh, research and data surrounding student experience? 
to tell a real story of what happens in North Carolina's P20. So we, we say P20 from pre-K all the way up through college. So we push on the pre-K education pipeline so that we can think differently about the outcomes for students and what we're doing to get them where they need to be. I think it might talk about how this relates to North Carolina. Okay, um, so what does an uh, average day in your current job look like? Well, do you even have like an average day? Don't have an average day. Um, and I've been thinking about this. I So I work from home. Uh, typically, I've been working from home for like five years, even before I started working with Pre, which has its own set of challenges. But I would say I spend about 90% of my day reading email and answering email, which is pretty unfortunate. <laughs> but the other 10% in an average week is when I am right there having face-to-face -face conversations. Some of those conversations, I would say most of my conversations are grounded in conflict. And then the other port, so that's 90 and 10. There's like nuances and a couple of percentages where I spend time doing research and communicating. But I do spend a lot of time just helping people directly use the research to solve problems and to manage their conflict. Thank you for that answer. So I guess like you're saying that this organization is really new and it's just been almost a year now. So what did you do before Creed? Oh, before Creed, I, I ran my own company. I still call Facilitate Movement and I was a full-time facilitator for nonprofit. I just try to help people think about all the elements of quote unquote diversity so that they don't just use diversity as a buzz as a buzzword and they think about what it means to be really equitable in their practice. Oh, wow. I'm just really impressed with like everything that you do. Um, anyways, though, so just in honor of Throwback Thursday, um, we're going to take it a little way back, actually, um, to your childhood and talk about how you were raised for a little bit. <laughs> we're pretty no nonsense about education. They they, they were like, school is your job. That was not it. They gave us direct and clear focus on school. School is your job. That is all, that is what you do. Uh, my twin and I were very much encouraged with my two older brothers and my little sister. We were encouraged to argue with each other in our family. And so when we were learning new information, we would we would sit down at the table, at the dinner table, and we would have conversations with each other. And my mom would actively disagree with us, even if she didn't really disagree. She would disagree with what we were saying and force us to defend our position. And so if you can imagine having four to five kids around the table arguing with each other loudly, trying to defend their position and trying to make sure that their perspective was heard and valued, that's how I grew up. And so that stuck with me. It, it stuck with me through um, middle and high school as I got more involved with um, uh, sports and academics. Having, having that background where someone encourages you to be yourself, stick to your own perspective, defend your perspective, and really think about um, whether you're communicating clearly, that really helped me, that helped me think about what it means to value my education and to use it. Like, yeah, I really love that. I do argue with my siblings too, but it's not that like they're allowed to argue with each, like with each other like you. But okay, so let's fast forward to high school. We'd really like to know what like 11th grade Janine Bryant was like. So what were you passionate about, Diane? I love this question. In the 10th grade, I had an opportunity to do the first Emory University for the camp, for a summer camp. And it was called Youth Theology Institute. But it turns out that I signed up for the East meets West philosophy class. And I spent all of my time for uh, two months learning about Eastern and Western uh, religious philosophy and how it was practiced. And imagine like showing up in a place and I was raised very much um, in a, of a very particular religious doctrine, felt so overwhelmed and uncomfortable for a very long time. But the result was that it, it was a radically different opportunity for me to push myself into not being so judgmental. But when I went back to school that next year, I carried that same energy with me. I, I'd like, I was like, oh, like 
there's so many new people. There's so many ideas and so many ways of being in the world that I was closed off to because I was so judgmental. So 11th grade me showed up as a a person who welcomed difference, a, per, a person who was willing to educate myself, a person who was willing to advocate on behalf of people who felt silenced. That really showed me to like to show up as a leader, simultaneously like help other people get to their to their um whatever their saw their finish line as well so it definitely seems like you kind of knew that like you liked arguing a little bit then you want to yep. also be a leader and then you also wanted to see everyone's different perspectives through so throughout like all of that in high school did you ever like say like i know like this is what i want my job to be this is where i want to work or just like how was that like process of like thinking about like oh what do i want to be when i grow up <laughs> yeah it wasn't clear cut at all so if you are thinking like, man, I don't know what I want to do. That's okay. Because for most of my life, I was a hundred percent sure I was going to be a veterinarian because I loved animals and I was really good with animals. So I just was like, I'm going to be a veterinarian. And then I took biology and I was like, wow, there's a lot of biology. I don't, there's a lot. I don't know about that. So then I decided that I wanted to be a psychologist because I took a great psychology course and I was like, oh, psychology is so interesting. Like, I really want to do this. Then I got to college and I took a psychology course and I was like, this is super duper boring. And so I landed on anthropology, actually. And anthropology is the study of human culture. <laughs> I did, it was not a straightforward path at all. And I originally wanted to be a forensic anthropologist because I had heard some book where they were talking about forensic anthropology and I was like oh forensic anthropology where I can study bones and then I got to Davidson and they didn't have they didn't even have a forensic anthropology program so I had to do <laughs> applied anthropology uh, which goes to say like carefully research where you land uh, where you plan to do your undergrad at um, so that you can make sure it actually has your major or at least something that, you, that you're interested in um, it was it was a good place for me to land though a place that I became a trained facilitator actually was in college so it, it did help me get there it just was very circuitous I think it's like really interesting for us to hear that because like actually I'm undecided to think to hear that you're like went through like a lot of majors and you studied a lot so now um could you say the same for our listeners before we jump into the conversation we'll be discussing racial inequities in our education system equity can be a bit confusing for some folks how would you define it i think equity can be confusing because we use the words equity and equality pretty interchangeably and so if you get our head to think about equality which is where everything is the same everything is equal same same on both sides equity on the other hand is about justice and fairness for me uh, particularly in the work that I do at Crete, is looking at a longer view of history and thinking about systemic injustice and how do we make that right? Like, how do we how do we create fairness on the scales uh, when there is a longer history of imbalance and when there's a longer history of deliberate, sometimes very deliberate, um, oppression or marginalization of a people? And so particularly for Black people and people of color in North Carolina and in this country, we have to be very careful that we, when we're talking about equity, we really are talking about justice and fairness. And I guess just like to tie this like all like back into school and like education and things, what role does or should equity play into education? When I was in the classroom and I saw firsthand the difference between that elementary school experience than what I had experienced. I saw firsthand the difference between that school and a private school in Charlotte. And that was the first time that I started to see inequity, like kind of in my face. Um, and I was coming from a private college, right? So I'm coming from a very well-funded private institution. And I go to what, um, what is normally called a Title I school, which is where they have federal funding to, to, um, to help support the, the educational experience of students at that school in that geographic region. And it was the first time that I started to understand what inequity looks like on the ground 
But reality is in North Carolina, um, our school systems, a lot of them are based on tax distribution and have a lot to do with how much income a parent has. And so a lot of our educational outcomes can be, when you hear someone say like your zip code shouldn't dictate your educational outcomes in the public education system, that's what they mean. Because a lot of our educational outcomes have a lot to do with where you live and if your parents have money. And in a public education system that is uh, supposed to be created so that um, our students are prepared for the world and prepared to be educated and involved citizens, we would need to go out of our way to make sure that that is funded equitably not just equally. And so that's part of the work that uh, I do with Creed is that I get to to not only notice that there's inequity and that there's gaps for income and social access and teacher qualification, I get to say, I see this gap and here's what we need to do to fix it. And so this is that's the work that I do. And I think that in North Carolina, it's vitally important to keep constantly asking ourselves the question of whether or not what we see happening is really a quote unquote achievement gap related to a student or whether it's really about the larger inequitable system at play. Is there, is there income disparity? Is there access and resource disparity? Or do you have access to the same college level prep courses? Do you have access to the same high quality teachers? Do you have access to the same uh, resources that other students do? And if you don't, in a public education system, we should be asking some harder questions about how to get that to be right. Is that too much, Hannah? <laughs> you saw me. No, that was a really great answer. I mean, I think like we can all like agree that something that's so vital, education helps you get jobs, helps you go so many places. Education is power. So like, why is it so hard to get a good education? Um, that shouldn't be the case. I saw a couple of people like nodding their, their heads um, because I think, if you've ever if you've ever been at one school and then you have an opportunity to visit another school, you're going to notice things about the school as soon as you walk into the door. And so when you notice those things about the school, then, you know, sometimes we have an opportunity to take it back and reflect and, and to think, is that right? Like, especially if you go in Charlotte, it's usually people call out the schools on the east or west corridor. Um, because if you go to the north or the south, you will see dramatic differences in how the schools are presented. And so when you have an opportunity to actually to, to walk on those campuses, you can see such a big difference um, in, in how the, not just like the look and feel of the, the school, but how, how kids are treated, what the expectations are, whether or not they have to wear uniforms or not. All of those things um, are related to how we think about educational experiences and how, how do we think about the bodies of children in those buildings. So you have a background in history and museum science. Can you provide some historical context to like where we are now? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you kind of an example and then tie it back. So I was a kindergarten teacher. And when I got in, when I was my first year, they were very strict in the rules around like when children could go to the bathroom and they had them on a schedule. And I don't know if y'all have been around a lot of five-year-olds, but they don't really use a bathroom on a schedule. Um, <laughs> They kind of just like, they feel it and they're like, I gotta go. And so I kept pushing back on my, principal and my assistant principal and saying like I don't think I can make these students go to the bathroom on the schedule I can teach them how to tell me very quickly that they have to go but I don't think it's it's not fair to them to try to make them control their bodies this way it's, they're little people and they are learning their bodies and they are learning um so I, I pushed I kept pushing back around like bathroom use and naps and snack time and I just couldn't understand why they they kept reducing things for students and I, I said this makes me feel like I'm supposed to to and I'll, I'll use this word and I'll explain what I mean. I said, it made me feel like I'm supposed to domesticate their bodies. The same way that I'd have to house train a puppy, I felt like I was house training these small babies. And it, it really, really bothered me that I was supposed to treat them that way. And that they, that they them learning their bodies and learning how to be in a, in a class 
was so scheduled and so regimented that it didn't make me feel like I was honoring who they were as little developing people. That idea of like um, regimenting a, a child that way really aggravated me, but it's very much about bodies as units of production, which also harkens back to when you think about um, the foundations of the American economy are, are on the backs of those who are enslaved. And so their bodies were literal units of production. So they needed to have control over a body. And I think about like, how does that translate? In and then in North Carolina, we hit the 1998 race massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is a flag. Like so sometimes history really can't teach us a lot. And so there's a flag on that. And there's a, it's a moment where we can start to think about when people finally had control over their own bodies, literally, when people had control over their own body, th there was a, a construct called the white supremacist movement, and it literally wanted to create supremacy, supreme hierarchy of white people back into the South. And it was a whole campaign. You can literally Google historic white supremacy campaign in North Carolina. There was, it was a political movement. And so when we talk about white supremacy or we talk about um, uh, racialized violence and uh, domestication of bodies. These are not foreign concepts. These are all things that are related to the educational experience. This is why we had to have Brown v. Board of Education. This is why we had to have people like Dorothy Counts here locally in Charlotte. Who Dorothy Counts is still alive. Dorothy Counts was one of the first four students in Charlotte, North Carolina to integrate schools. She is still alive and very active. She's a sociologist in, in Charlotte and has worked with children for her whole life. Education is a major uh, factor for her. She is still alive, y'all. So when we when we're contextualizing like the like history of this, to me, there's a very easy to see through line of bodily control, putting having to put yourself in really deeply uncomfortable positions to change that story and that narrative, and that goes right on through Jim Crow era South and right through to what the blowback was from all of this. There were lynchings, there were whippings, there were drownings, and then eventually there were property burnings and uh, bombings and cross burn. There's a there's a house near West Charlotte high school that still has a chunk of the house missing it's like still to this day has a chunk of the house missing because they were bombed during the civil rights era for fighting for segregated schools so the, the history that we're talking about, it, it might seem like it's a long time away but it, it's not that long ago and so someone wrote in the chat like many of these changes are really, really new yes they are really new what you what you all experience as the educational experience are not that's not that far removed from fighting for equality and understanding like racial equality did not mean racial equity. So we still have to fight for the very thing that we've been fighting for since uh, Brown v. Board and since, since slaves were uh, secretly re reading by candlelight so they wouldn't get caught. This is something that I'm really passionate about because we're still fighting about these things, even as late as 2005 with the Capiccione case where uh, a white family said that they were being discriminated against. And it, it, it reversed all of the decisions that were used to help integrate CMS as a, as a school district. And those kinds of policy decisions have long lasting implications and can really change the outcomes for all of you all. And sometimes you sometimes you know that what policy is happening and sometimes you're just swept up in it and you don't know how this is related to your experience. But it's literally having an impact on what schools you have access, how they draw the map lines, who gets to speak up for you at the school board meetings. All of those things are connected. Yeah, I think it's really important that we're still like able to look at our history and say like this wasn't that long ago and we're still able to see how it's impacting things going on now and how like things are still prevalent. But that being said, like if you had to give like Charlotte a letter grade and then also North Carolina a letter grade on like how they're doing with equity, what would you give them? That's a hard question and I'll tell you why. The I, I believe that the grading system that we're currently using is is fundamentally uh, flawed 
And so it'd be hard for me to use like the, our traditional grading system to, to use as a kind of way to enact a, um, a judgment against the system. What I can say is that the historic inequities that we saw in North Carolina throughout history from the time of enslavement, many of those things are still very much present now. And so if I, if I was grading on ability to show, to demonstrate progress and proficiency and achievement, I would say that we have not necessarily achieved our goal. I've been in education for 25 years. I've seen us talking about the same achievement gaps for all of those 20 years, like all of the 20 to 25 years I've been at, they've been talking about the same things. So if, if I was a student and I could not get mastery over the same thing over and over again, I would say there was a problem. I would say there was a serious problem. Yeah. So we kind of already talked about this, like on a systemic level and about like history and everything. Um, but what policies does Creed, like, are they advocating for in the name of equity? So uh, one key policy that I'll highlight, um, we actually advocate, we have 14 different facets of educational equity that we, are ta we talk about explicitly as they relate to race. And that's particularly for Black students and Indigenous students and Latino students. We think it's really important to, to say what we're talking about because I don't just want to say like people of color because a lot of our students from Asian backgrounds are outliers for a lot of these metrics. And that's, there's a complexity behind this. We focus on access to additional resources, whether or not our teachers are, 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 have high quality training. Do they come from a shared background as their students? Do they share a background? Do they share any kind of any kind of connection to their students at all? Because what we found is in North Carolina, there are a lot of students, a lot of students being taught by uh, teachers who have only had one to three years of teaching experience. And many of those teachers are, are, are not at all of the same socioeconomic or racial background of the students. So they have a hard time getting culturally proximate to their students at all in any way. And so those are the kinds of things that we talk about really explicitly about building teacher pipelines, helping, helping students understand what it means to be an educator because it's a really powerful role. And I'm, I consider myself a lifelong educator. But one thing that one policy topic that is really near and dear to my heart when we talk about the school to prison pipeline. And so people talk about that all the time, but I don't think we understand just how little advocacy we have around that. Like you can't, I don't know that most people know, and I certainly, I didn't even know that you can't appeal certain suspensions when you're in class, like you are just suspended and your assistant principal can make that mandate. And then the parent does not have the right to appeal that. I think a lot of parents think that they do. And so, and then there's a lot of parents who just get overwhelmed by the process and they're just like, well, you're just gonna have to take it. You just gotta take it on the chin. This became apparent to me when my child was in the third grade um, and she was accused of hurting another student. They said that she dropped a, a, a table on another student's neck. And I was really alarmed by that story. And I was like, she's in third grade and I don't see how that could possible how it's possible it really was a reflection of her teacher mismanaging her classroom and there was a little boy crawling on the floor my daughter had on a skirt and the little boy crawled on the floor and my daughter said please move and he didn't move and she looked she said please move again and he didn't move and she lifted up the table she looked at him and said please move and he was between her legs while she had a skirt on and he refused to move and she dropped the table and as a parent, I was told that uh, I was told to come down to the office, come down to the school. And no, I wasn't even told to come down to school. I was told that my child was in trouble and that and that she was going to be suspended and that I would be responsible for this child's chiropractor bills. And I, like I said, I've worked from home for quite a while now. And so I was able to jump in my, I actually wasn't working from home at that time. I worked for a very um, flexible employer. I was able to get in my car and drive to her school right away. They did not expect for me to show up, but in that, in showing up for her, I was able to ask the questions around what had the teacher done, um, what was what was happening as a series of consequences for the young man, 
because my daughter was in tears and she was like, I don't know what this is. Like, I don't know why I'm in trouble. And it was really hard for me to explain to her that she was now kind of in the, the system. And I don't know if you all know this, but in third grade, if a child gets a disciplinary, what I call a disciplinary touch, so if they are touched by the disciplinary system, it exponentially increases their chance of getting in the school to present pipeline. It exponentially increases their chance of getting multiple suspensions and referrals in their lifetime. And so for me, when to, for her teacher to put her in that category, it was going to have lifelong implications. And so I took my I took it, my role very seriously to intervene on her behalf and to say that I would absolutely not accept that and that I wanted them to file police charges on the young man who um, who had sexually assaulted my daughter. When I said that, they backed down and we were able to get it all wrapped up and that she was no longer suspended. But what I do know is that not every parent has the time or the opportunity to go and advocate for their children that way. And it boils me up that, you know, for you can very easily be put into the school to present pipeline from, from a third grade infraction, y'all, from a middle school disciplinary touch. Those things have long lasting impacts to the self-esteem and the value that a child places on their educational experience. And it can have ramifications that echo for the rest of their lives. I work in talking about the ties between white supremacy and our educational experience and, and um, how that can lead to um, literally from the schoolhouse to the jailhouse. And so we talk very explicitly about that. And it's something that both James and I are super passionate about because we just don't believe that any child, just because their parent can't come to the school and advocate for them, that they should be now enfolded into that system. Okay, so I think that's great. Like we all have to learn how to like advocate for ourselves and like even for our siblings if they're like in any like middle school, elementary and just like kind of educate others too. So on an individual level, uh, is there something that we can do to promote equity in uh, education? I would say on an individual level, for me, equity is really about learning to pay attention and not just to your own experience but paying attention to what you see happening around you um, I think most of us don't pay that much attention to educational equity until it impacts us directly um, and so as you raising your voice your individual voice your voice has power and when you take the time to notice something and name it be and be specific when you're naming it then you can actively work to change it and so some some of us I think they get pretty to wrapped up like, are we saying it the right way? Do I have the, like the perfect statement? Do I have this, the statistic to back it up? If you see something and you name it, then you open up an opportunity to talk about it for real. If you don't name it, it can go on. Um, and so this is how so many of our white supremacist structures, and I, I'm using the white supremacists in the, in the framework of systemic injustice that, get, that give hierarchical priority to white people um, and to white, I'm using white in, in parentheses, culture. Um, that is about systems. So when you see something in a system, like if you see overwhelmingly that certain zip codes have uh, really disparate outcomes, you should name that. You shouldn't say like, oh, look at that, man. Looks like all those kids in that district just can't make a good score on the EOG. That's not, that's not something that's like an outlier. That's a real result of the system. And you have to name those things. I think that's the first step that anybody can take um, is being willing to own their own self-agency, own their power of their voice, and name what you see so you can open up the conversation about whether or not it is equitable or is it fair and just. Also, thank you for sharing your story um, about your daughter. That was really um, powerful. And like you said, it's kind of like you don't really like see these issues until it like happens to you or until like you hear about it. So thank you for sharing that. I guess like going kind of back away from 
the equity conversation, but more back to like your personal life. Obviously, we're CYC and we focus a lot on getting into colleges. So speaking about colleges, I know that you went to Davidson College. Are you able to reflect on your experience there? Uh, in total? <laughs> or uh, is there a particular facet of my experience you would like to me, for me to reflect on? Good question. <laughs> I guess like what drew you to Davidson College in the first place? So I was not drawn to Davidson College in the first place. Um, <laughs> I selected to go to Howard, which is an HBCU in um, DC. I was super excited and I had a roommate and they wrote about me in the newspaper for, for choosing Howard. They named my roommate. Um, we were all pretty excited. And then my parents faxed in the form to go to Davidson instead. They made that decision. They talked amongst themselves and they made that decision um, because they said I was not ready for a urban environment. What they meant was they did not think I was ready to be around that many black people. Now, that's a complicated, it's a complicated uh, reflect, reflection of the hierarchy that my own parents put on um, the value of black, black immersive experiences in education, which I think is really important for some of us to deal with like anti-black, how anti-blackness shows up in our own lives and how it might be leading uh, people to make choices but I ended up at Davidson, which is a, a small, predominantly white institution, private institution at the top of the Mecklenburg County. And that school, when I went there, was smaller than my high school. Like the total student body population was actually smaller than my high school. And that year, they recruited their, they were really proud because they recruited more African-Americans. Actually, no, they recruited more students of color, not African-Americans. More students of color than they ever had. And I was one of 20 black females and then there were 20 black males so in total on my freshman year there were 40 black people in my freshman class so I don't know how that contextualizes against your experience but I was coming from a predominantly black high school and so I it was a radically very very different experience for me and I went from having not to have to talk about our deal with my racialized identity to having my uh, my understanding of my racial my racial identity and my, and my um, identity as a first-generation college grad, all of that being thrown in my face all the time. And um, it was a very, it left, it left a long-lasting impression on me. Davidson was the place that afforded me the experience to travel extensively by the time, but when I went there, I had only been on a plane, I think one time, maybe twice in my entire life. By the time I'd left, I'd been to five different continents um, and studied in India, Bolivia, and Ghana. And, um, so it afforded me that kind of opportunity. And simultaneously, it was also the first time I was arrested. And um, it was the first time that I had to like fight for my own rights and had to look, I had to use my voice to protect my own self-agency. And so it's a, it's the kind of experience that I think, this is why I say be so careful when you're thinking about your undergrad choices and the choices that you make that lead you up to college, because it definitely shaped who I am professionally. It afforded me lots of opportunity for extensive travel, um, language difference, cultural difference. It also simultaneously forced me to be very wary and conscious of how to show up in the world. And it, it made me very conscious of like what it means to be an educator and the power of educators to help transform your experience. I had a fantastic mentor who I'm still connected with today, who was my undergrad um, uh, faculty uh, mentor. And she still stays connected with me and buys my daughter gifts from Ghana. And uh, we're still connected today. We're probably going to eat lunch more on Sunday. So long lasting relationships like that can be formed when you're in those kind of tough situations. And I certainly have made some of my very, very best, most dearest friends while I was there at Davis and just 
supremely awesome people who I feel deeply grateful to be connected with for 20 years. That sounds really interesting. I'm just like waiting for to go to college and just like making that kind of friendship, a friendship, I guess. So you kind of talked about this, but like, were there any inequities in your um, education versus that of your peers? Like, if so, what were they? In my entire educational experiences, uh, we're always in classrooms for mixed race and we were all about the same socioeconomic status. So I didn't, that's why I said, like, I really didn't have to encounter um, inequity. I didn't think about it that much because it had not yet touched me. Uh, when I went to Davidson and um, <laughs> there was a set of siblings that had matching Range Rovers that they would drive between classes. And these are people who live in Charlotte. So just so you know, like, I want to help contextualize that like, I, it was my first time really understanding, like, um, the, the real difference between wealth and um, what was considered at that point high class um, and those people who are considered elite versus myself, who I, I, I'd always considered myself middle class. <laughs> uh, and uh, did I have a matching Range Rover with my twin sister? No, we did not go to college with computers, um, never mind a car and or any other uh, access to resources. We were both the uh, first in our families to go. No, my, my older brother went to um, Clemson but didn't graduate. Um, so I actually am literally the first person in my family to graduate from a four-year four college university. Okay, that's great. Um, so you talked about a little bit earlier how you're an anthropology major. Can you just like briefly talk about how that gets set the foundation for your career now? Anthropology is all about learning how to observe, listen carefully to other people's stories, and then to uh, and then use that to relate back to other people. And so that definitely curved my my normal approach where I was just like kind of a uh, quote unquote high achieving student. I was really driven and I was just kind of like a perfectionist. I would just go in, try to get all my work done. That was for everything that I tackled. When I started studying anthropology, I realized there were other ways of approaching the world and that the way that I had been taught didn't necessarily make it the right way. It just meant that was the way I had been taught. And so cultural anthropology opened the world. It really opened my eyes and opened me to the world and opened me to thinking about like, how do I truly begin to understand and empathize with other people's experience? Even if their experience is really, really different than mine, how can I get, give myself the opening and the opportunity to relate to them for real? And that authenticity has served me for the rest of my professional life. That's why I'm, I'm a full-time professional facilitator and educator. Yeah, so I think uh, now we're going to have like Q&A section with our fellows. I have like one more question that I just wanted to ask. Obviously, because of like COVID-19 and Corona and everything, we couldn't like end this call, you know, without asking. Obviously, like this has impacted each of our lives like differently. Um, but how do you think that it's impacted equity in education right now? COVID-19 has made our educational system very, for lack of a better word, naked. It shows the the inequities that were always in the system. It shows them bare bones. So those students who, who didn't really have very clear access to all the resources of other students, now you can see it firsthand because you can see that they maybe don't have access to the, to the same technology. They don't have access to the Wi-Fi at their house. They don't have access to, um, to the things they need to support a quiet, stable educational environment. And so I think it's really, really important for us to think about COVID-19 as an opportunity to, to learn about like the, the lessons that remote learning can teach us. The good, there's some good lessons, right? Like um, there's people who, who have social anxiety who for the first time are like, oh, I can really, really concentrate. Or there's people who have some attention deficits and are like, oh, now I can really focus. And it might be there, they might be finding a lot of benefit for that. I think we should pay attention to that just as much as we should pay attention to students who are, 
are not being able to access the resources that they need because that's been a problem before COVID and it's going to be a problem after COVID unless we address it. And so it gives us an opportunity to think about children who are houseless and homeless. And it gives us an opportunity to think about whether teachers should be disciplined students' bodies in the same ways that we have been before. You see a lot of teachers worried about whether or not you turn your camera on or um, did you have your pajamas on versus those are kind of things that don't actually have anything to do with student achievement. But we we have found that we spent a lot of time building systems around those questions. And COVID-19 has made us all very much aware of that because it, it just it highlights those those inequities in our own practice and bias that we couldn't see before. Um, now we're going to open it up to any questions that our fellow CYC fellows have. So I had to ask, at what point is it an individual choice versus a system choice? That's a great question. So I do a little activity where um, we compare something being structure, structural, like is it, a, is it a structure or is it about individual agency? And so, you know, sometimes we say things like if we're talking about like students getting, getting to school late, if you don't set your alarm clock, that's an individual choice. If you live in a place where the bus never comes to your house, that's a structural choice. That's a structural difference. So you, you have to be able to, to think about whether something is like truly about individual agency or whether there is like a structural thing in place that prevents or prohibits your full involvement with the system. And you can do, you can ask that question about anything, you know, if you don't fill out a college application because you, but you had it, that's very different than you never were introduced to the common app and no one ever talked to you about how to fill it out. That's, those are two different, very different things, right? How can a young adult advocate for educational equity? Oh, that's a good question. So there's lots of ways to get involved. There's actually a number of grassroots groups here in Charlotte and in the Greensboro Triad of young people who are directly advocating for educational equity. So they have organized themselves to create um, a standardized platform. There was a group of students from RG Kell who did this as well who like got together because they saw a number of inequities happening at their school, particularly racial inequities, and they formed their own group. And they organized that group to have a very specific platform so that they could campaign on behalf of issues that were important to them. That's one, that's one key way. You should know that, that Freedom Hill that I mentioned earlier is our um, advocacy body in, for Creed. And you all are certainly welcome to join Freedom Hill. Our hashtag is I stand on Freedom Hill. And if you were to um, search that hashtag, you'll see possibly even hundreds of messages of people talking about what they are advocating for directly related to educational equity. If you follow us on Instagram um, at creed underscore NC or on Twitter, we can get you connected into the, um, into the next action. Jen says, how can a student that identifies as white or is part of a group that is a, in a dominant group begin to advocate for justice? I think this is a really, really important question because a lot of times we we talk in ways that make that can make it seem like uh, those who are white allies and are accomplices and are co-conspirators, sometimes they can feel alienated from the work of racial inequity. But actually, because we live in the United States of America and our history is really, really tangled, it's, it's always going to be. We always are sharing this space. We are always going to be on lands that were occupied before us. So we have to think about all, the, we have to think about the longer view. Um, so I actually think that any person who is white-bodied or somebody who is trying to become an ally should really do some of the work to explore their own story and history um, and their own culture so that when they come into the work of allyship and accomplish, um, you might have heard people use the, um, the terminology around a co-conspirator or an accomplice. What they're saying is, are you willing to, and we use the phrase, um, can you lock elbows with me? 
when you are seeing someone who is experiencing marginalization or oppression, and that could be for any facet, for gender, sexuality, identity, disability, um, to all of those who are experiencing any kind of mar system of marginalization, can you lock elbows with them and stand side by side with them as they're trying to do this work? Um, because it's, it is very possible to um, say very um, unequivocally that you love and support black people. That doesn't mean that you have to actually be black, right? Um, you can, and that doesn't mean that you have to respond as, um, as many people do as all lives matter. What it means is that you are willing to uplift those people who have experienced historic oppression and center their stories and their narrative so that they can be uplifted because there's, a, there's an idea that relates to intersectionality that relates to white fragility. There's an idea that if you focus on those people who are experiencing the most long-term exacerbated oppression and you uplift them, everyone gets uplifted. So when you're talking about somebody being black trans femme, if their story is uplifted and centered and you're making sure that they have rights, everybody's rights are going to be acknowledged. Everybody's, everybody's gender pronouns are going to be acknowledged. Everybody's um, educational equity experience is going to be acknowledged. Everybody's um, experiences of the incarceration system will be acknowledged. When you can do that and you can learn to decenter yourself and your own experience, that's when you can start to say, I am in, I am in, I am a co-conspirator with you and I'm willing to make plans with you and support you and uplift you. We all believe that we have a role to play in moving our role toward becoming a better place and we all can make a statement. So when people think about Janine Bryant a hundred years from now, what is the statement that you want to have made? You know what? Y'all didn't give me this question to prepare with. <laughs> Say it one more time so I can get it in my head and let me get it right. <laughs> so like when people think about you a hundred years from now, what is the statement that you want to have made? I want people to say that Janine Bryant was a fearless architect for a more equitable future and that she was passionately dedicated um, to changing systems so that they could serve all people to meet their needs. That's perfect. <laughs> That was, I, well, were, that was perfect. were you about to have prep? That was like so well said and everything. Well, we all have the choice to make a statement daily. So everyone, I just want you to ask yourself, what will be your next statement? Thank you, Janine, for the great conversation. And thank you everyone for tuning in. And we'll see you next week.